Due to our extensive individual stock holdings, personally and professionally, you should assume that clients, the firm, and Mr. Truesdell has a position in all companies discussed, and thus a conflict of interest exists. Let's begin. Well, it is uh, November the 18th, 2019. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things, but today we're going to do something kind of cool. We're going to talk about uh, agriculture at length, and you're going to enjoy it. I promise you. I'm the man, I got the plan, when it hits the fan, do all I can, do all I can. Now, if you happen to go online, we're going to be putting, I think, a video up, uh, maybe this episode or the next one, on how to use our favorite podcast player called Overcast. If I don't get it up this time, it'll be next time. But the bottom line is that is a really cool little program. And if you're not using, you really ought to. Again, that's called Overcast. Okay, enough of this. Let's get started. When it comes to the differences between a financial planner and a financial advisor, generally speaking, no matter where you go in the world, it could be in India, it could be in the European Union, anywhere from border to border here in the United States, doesn't make any difference where you're at. People do not know the difference between an advisor and a planner. And with that being said, you can pretty well bet your sweet bippy oh, me, oh my. that most of the academics out there don't know the difference either. What are the experiences that you're having when it comes to advice? And the problem, it seems, is pretty simple. Just exactly what does advice mean versus the procurement or the sale of financial products? And because words are not clean, clear, and concise, there's a real sense and loss of trust among people when it comes to exactly who is and what is a financial planner versus a financial advisor. Now, just because a lot of people say they want to receive advice, and in some cases it averages about 41%, about twice that many, around 80% of the population says, well, I know that whoever I'm working with has more knowledge than me. But the problem is this, what is a recognized expert. So one of the things everybody talks about all the time is wanting to be financially independent, which you've always heard, you know, it's that time in your life when you work because you want to work, not because you have to work. That all sounds good. But how about some good old-fashioned plain financial happiness? Yeah, I get it. You want to be financially independent, but along the way, I don't know about you, but I think you might want to consider being financially happy. One of the ways to be happy is when you have someone in your life that you can trust. If you can't trust them, you're not all that happy. Now think about this. You have a spouse that has a spending problem, right? You have a spouse that is just not on the same wavelength as you. They have a secret life that they just will not share with you. You're not a happy camper. You can say you are, but you're not. And the same thing applies to that financial planner where you're really not sure what he or she is making. And one day when you come to that realization that everything seems to be affordable to them, them, but not to you. Well, maybe they're just making a whole lot more money than you. I'm not saying that all financial planners are dirtbags, but I can tell you that my feelings is that most of these financial planners, you shouldn't trust them because they're selling product, especially these insurance-based financial planners. I don't see why anyone has a problem calling themselves a life insurance agent or a disability agent, or a property casualty agent. When I meet someone who says, look, I'm an insurance agent, and I don't do securities, I'm not a financial planner, 
I like what I do. Well, I'll talk to that person. But what I will not do? Oh, no. Not going to talk to this guy or gal who says, oh, yeah, I do uh, insurance. And it's also a, a way to become financially independent. And I can solve all your problems with insurance. I'm just really getting sick of that. Well, that good old-fashioned tool that a lot of us used in the past when we did seminars, at least that's in my case. I don't do really seminars anymore. They're not really worth it. The time and effort is kind of questionable at best. So what we do is we do a lot of online presentations. But, uh, you know, once, once upon a time, long time ago, I was one of the very first people to have a laser. And uh, when you did presentations, the audience would kind of ooh and ah. But those uh, simple little low-cost presentation devices now, they're kind of like calculators. Very first, first Texas Instruments calculator my father bought, adding and subtracting, multiplying and dividing. It, was cost, it cost him $999.99. It was a big old thing. It was uh, like a brick. $999.99, something that today basically you could get in a Cracker Jack box if they had those things around anymore. But here's the thing. Those little rascals, man, they're playing havoc with the uh, government in Chile. You see the uh, Chilean protesters, and there's a bunch of problems in South America right now. You've got uh, Venezuela, Chile. I mean, they got some real issues going on down there. So the government's got these uh, lasers, or rather they've got these drones, and they're flying around. But there's videos online, and we've seen them, where these protesters are taking the laser, they're pointing at the drones, and it's causing the drones to crash. They can't basically see the obstacles that are in, in front of them. You get the uh, camera, it blinds the operator, it just fries everything out, it might even be frying the circuitry. So there's a lot of questions as to exactly how this is going on. Protesters in Hong Kong, for example, are using lasers to uh, basically cause havoc with the facial recognition cameras that are quite literally everywhere. So from a grassroots protesting standpoint, these low-powered lasers are really causing a lot of issues. So if you're the government and you've got protesters with masks and shields on and helmets on, you really don't know who they are, and then you're blinding all of the items that are out there, turning up the heat and melting the components, internal wiring, and causing batteries to explode, yeah, that's going to be an interesting uh, thing, not only there, but here as well. You know this 2020 election, it's not going to be peaceful. You can bet your bottom dollar on that one. More and more employers are offering to help their workers pay off their student loans. This is not something that's unusual. And since we have basically $1.5 trillion and growing on a collective basis by Americans with student loan debt, you know, that's a lot of coin. That's basically twice what it was 10 years ago. Now, the burden is heavy. I know this because I meet with a lot of folks that are under the age of 40 and even under the age of 45 who are still carrying debt. I had one gentleman say to me, you know, Paul, what you're doing is helping people like me. I'm in my 30s, and some of these fellows and gals are in their 20s. are making good coin. He said, what you're doing is amazing. And it's really nice to have a guy like you who's actually out there caring a whole a bunch about people like us. But the problem is we, you know, look, I'm not unusual. I'm making $75,000, dollars $100,000 a year, but I'm barely able to make ends meet. There's just not that much left over. And when I tell people that, you know, here's the thing. I really don't care how much you have. You just got to start. It's building that habit. I'll talk about habits a little bit later on. But one of the big things is you got to put money away. So if you're an employer and you got an employee who's got some real serious debt, 
is that employee worthwhile keeping? If that person is, you could do what some law enforcement agencies have done for years. It's a pretty simple little tool. What you do is you say to the person, tell you what, let's enter into an employment contract. I'll pay off your debt. You'll be debt free. But you owe me four years of continuous employment and you have to perform at a certain level. If you don't, you're terminated and we're going to withhold some of your salary to recoup and you're going to have to pay me back. I mean, there's a bunch of creative things you can do. So let's say this. Somebody owes us, say, $40,000. Hiring people is a pain in the rear end. It's not a lot of fun. So what you do is you say to the person, tell you what, we're going to pay off $10,000 of your debt every year for the next four years. In four years, you'll be completely free of your student debt. Does that make sense? Of course it makes sense. No, no longer have the fog of the debt that's carrying on top of you. But now you've got to perform and, you know, you've got to do it right. So first year you do fine, second year you do fine. And then your employer also is withholding a little bit of your pay because if you should leave, they're going to recoup. You can structure these agreements without a lot of difficulty. In fact, what we're going to do is put a program together. We're going to put it on our client-only podcast and educate to talk about how you as an employer can incentivize the right kind of employee to stick around who has pretty heavy student debt. So employers, you know, you don't have to have a repayment assistance program that is available to everybody. You can discriminate on that. You can do it as a flat percentage or as a dollar amount. You can do it as an incentive benefit. There's lots of different ways you can do to create a win-win situation. But the bottom line is, if the government would pull its head out of its you-know-what, and actually provide more financial incentive for employers to be able to write off these kinds of expenses, it might make a lot of sense. Because here's the thing, debt inhibits growth. And the more you have, the less you're going to grow. Well, from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump to Elizabeth Warren and the man the moon, everybody is going to make me healthy. And what we're all hearing about on a nonstop basis is the inequality of health care. Well, no kidding, there's inequality in health care. And the reasons for it are pretty simple and plain. You have people who care about themselves, there are people who don't. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you want to be healthy, you need to take responsibility for your own health. Now, it's not rocket scientists, and you need to sit down and figure out exactly what we're talking about. So it means getting up and doing things. It involves being healthy. Okay, now the five components of wealth, I'm going to hit them to you again. Five components of wealth are physical, emotional, intellectual, relationships, and financial. Under physical wealth, it involves strength, endurance, and flexibility with natural nutrition, hydration, and everything in moderation. So what that means is you don't run to the doctor's office when you get a little bit of a boo-boo. What you don't do is you got a little bit of a sniffle. You don't run into the doctor's office. Oh, no. And you got a little bit of a sprain on your back or your neck or whatever. You don't have to always run into a uh, chiropractor. Work it out yourself. Oh. So here's the bottom line. Get get a life, okay? Quit being such a crybaby. But at the same time, take responsibility for your own health. Now, there's an interesting study that's come out, a pretty large federal study, over 5,000 people. And it was questioning whether bypass surgeries and stents, for example, are they really worth it? Tens of thousands of heart patients every year with blocked coronary arteries have got stents, according to the American Heart Association, and this was released just recently. 
And the new study found that patients who received drug therapy alone did not experience any more heart attacks or die more often than those who got bypass surgery or stents. And stents are those little tiny wire gauges that you shove into somebody's heart into an artery and it opens it up. Now, the finding holds true for patients who were severely blocked as well. Now, this thing really challenges a lot of beliefs a lot of us have about the value and the importance of a stent. And a lot of us are beginning to really wonder, is this federal government study legit? Now, I understand the importance of, you know, doing studies, but I always question the source. Because what I do know, the country is moving towards socialism. What I do know, the country is rapidly moving towards communist-type approaches towards government. And that's not neither here nor here there. It's not something to argue about. It's just a matter of fact. And so as a result, is there a motivation? Well, 5,179 participants in this study found that... uh, for three and a half years, um, the effect of open blocked arteries and having these non-emergency situations, um, a good, powerful drug regimen um, seemed to work pretty well. So here's the thing. Depending upon the patient's condition, they had various doses of statins and lower cholesterol-lowering drugs, blood pressure medications, aspirin. For those with heart damage, it, what they did is they want to lower the heart rate. Okay, and those who got stents also took these powerful anti-clotting drugs and basically for six months. But the results are people didn't die any more or less in either way. Now, what we do know is that as a result of, let's say, stress tests and narrowing of the arteries, these examinations and cardiac um, catheterizations, they looked for blockages. In the past, it was always got a blockage, throw in a stent. But now, here's the kicker. This is what's really, really important. Oh. Average stent costs $25,000, okay? So that's pretty expensive. You get a bypass, that's $45,000. And if you have a combination of, uh, of various medications that uh, can be used, well, it cuts the costs nationwide by nearly a billion dollars a year. So if you have 31,000 fewer patients getting these devices and they're not having chest pain and they're not dying any earlier, then we're going to save some money. But the question is, we're saving money. The government pays the overwhelming majority through our tax dollars, Medicare and Medicaid. So can we trust this study? Well, I don't know. What I do know is that there is overwhelming evidence that there's not inequality in healthcare. There's inequality in how people take care of themselves. Exercise, no matter when you do it, will increase your life expectancy. And past levels of exercise, I got news for you. It doesn't carry into retirement. You stay in shape your whole life, and all of a sudden you start to retire and you become sedentary. That's bad news. This is something you have to do your entire life. So studying the changes in activity levels over time has been something that's beginning to pick up. And I can tell you I have a phenomenal study that I read years ago where those who were bedridden were able to get out of bed. This is a nursing home study. Those who were in a, uh, let's say, a wheelchair got to a walker. The walker got to a cane. Those who had a cane walked on their own with intensive physical therapy. Then, and this was all done within six months, amazing results. These are nursing home patients. But then when everybody left and the people went back to where they were, guess what? Within just a few days, a few weeks, six months of effort, 
fell apart real rapidly. It's always the two-for-one things. Two, two times harder going up a set of stairs and going down. So the bottom line is simply this. It's a lifelong thing you got to do. I don't care who you are. You have to stick with it. And if you want to be wealthy, you have to define what wealth is. In my book, it's physical wealth. That's the most important. Emotional, intellectual, relationships, and least important is financial. And I am a financial advisor. Go figure. Yep, 2020 is coming on, and you know what's going to happen? Everybody in the world is going to tell you how to make money. One of the things you got to be concerned about coming up is the fact that a lot of people are going to be putting on workshops, seminars, and everything in the world to tell you how they can make you rich. Don't buy this crap, okay? One of the things you need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, is making it in life ain't easy. All of these get-rich-quick schemes usually blow up. Why do you think we have a thing called SWAT, Sudden Wealth Awareness Training? It's because we know from, well, in my case, well over 34 years of experience as a real, honest-to-God, fiduciary-based investment advisor that people that get a large sum of money, inheritance, uh, lottery winning, you get that big movie deal, you get that big sports deal, you get that big uh, contract for uh, whatever it is you're going to do. And most people, they blow it. They can't help it. So what people wind up doing is they go to these things that are, you know, dream weekends. They want to go to uh, something that's like they get some celebrity from Shark Tank or from God knows where. They're going to tell you how to make it rich. Oh, horseshit. That stuff doesn't work. You know what works? It's called minting millionaire mindsets. Having a mongoose mindset, which is what we teach our clients. You know what? It ain't easy. Oh, Colonel Sanders, man, he was humping it nonstop until he was 65, until he started really making it with Kentucky Fried Chicken. You're just not going to go out and make a bucket load of money overnight. It's going to take time, and you got to sit down and think about it. That's why we talk about things like project management, about having patience, about working through it real methodically. you got to work it, okay? There's nothing going to replace persistence and patience and good old-fashioned common sense. That's all there is to it. So be careful of all these scams that are going to be coming in 2020. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. If you have a long-term care insurance policy or are considering a long-term care policy, pay careful attention to this. Get ready. This is powerful. Pentreaty Network America Insurance, a long-term care insurer based in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and its subsidiary, American Network Insurance, were placed in liquidation in March, leaving many of their 76,000 policyholders uncertain about whether they'll get all the benefits they paid for. Having initially underpriced their policies, the two companies now have assets of $468 million and liabilities of $4.6 billion, according to the Pennsylvania Insurance Department. Paul Grant Truesdell, founder of Fixed Cost Financial, is the person who began the investigation that led to the class action litigation 20 years ago, resulting in Pentreaty settling with many policyholders for fraudulent pricing schemes. Now the question is this, will the insurer that you have still be around when you make a claim, 
perhaps 20 or 30 years down the road? What no one disputes, however, is that older long-term care insurance policies have problems. The industry underestimated the cost and the frequency of claims, and the impact that falling bond yields would have on investment income. Remember, it was your host of Connecting Dots who is arguably the first person in the nation to call it the way it is. What no one disputes, however, is that older long-term care insurance policies have problems. The industry underestimated the cost and the frequency of claims, and the impact that falling bond yields would have on investment income. Paul Truesdell now has his eyes on GE, Prudential, and John Hancock. GE for example, took a $6.2 billion charge at the end of 2017. Now, let's return to words of wisdom from Paul Truesdell. Okay, so it's not a good situation. I can tell you absolutely unequivocally beyond exclusion of every reasonable doubt. I am a subject matter expert on long-term care. Over 20 years ago, I knew this was going to happen. And so I simply did an investigation on my own with my own money because I had clients, men and women, who were retired that had bought long-term care with John Hancock with all sorts of different companies who had a lot higher pricing than Penn Treaty. Look, Penn Treaty back in the day, if you could fog a mirror, they gave you insurance. And the problem is I proved, I proved with my investigation that they were scamming retirees. So I got a good friend of mine, a fellow by the name of Andy Dugali, a class action litigation attorney in Tampa, Florida. We sat down and I presented all the information to him. As a result of that, I had clients who signed up and said no more. They had the intestinal fortitude to stand up to a company like this. And now Penn Treaty is belly up. That company is a dirtbag company. I can tell you absolutely unequivocally, beyond exclusion of every reasonable doubt, the next Enron is Genron, G-Ron, that's G-E-Ron, Genron. GE's got real serious issues, but that's not the thing I want to tell you to remember about. Here's the thing that I want you to remember, and this is huge. You've got choices out there. Now, currently, John Hancock is offering to buy policies out. I had a client call me. I went down and saw them. We sat down and we went through the contract. We went through what the offer was. Now, my client, I got to tell you, they're going to come out about $49,000 ahead of where they would have been. And over the course of the next five years, they should have about $100,000 more to their name rather than paying the long-term care insurance policy. We structured a few things, but I know how to do things, okay? I've been doing this for a long, long time. And if you want to work with somebody who's going to sell you something, ah. go get your typical insurance agent, advisor, banker, broker, or these idiotic oh. financial planners who are always trying to sell you something wrapped in the blanket of, oh, I'm a fiduciary, but they're nothing more than commission-based salespeople. Oh, me, oh, my. You don't want to deal with those people. You want to deal with a real fiduciary. I am so damn proud of the work that I did recently for some folks that I've known for a long time, and I can do that for you. I know what I'm doing. I guarantee you we can sit down and we can take it to the woodshed with these SOBs that are ripping you off on long-term care insurance. Now, here's the thing. It's a great product, but the problem is these things are so badly priced since we're poorly underwritten and interest rates are so low... 
somebody's going to pay and it's going to be you. So if you've got a current policy, there's a lot of options out there and available to you, but you're not going to learn them unless you work with somebody like me and an organization like ours, Fixed Cost Financial. So here's what you do. Call 212-433-2525. Ideally, go to our website, fixedcostfinancial.com. And we would prefer that you use the contact page or use our intercom. We're simply too busy to answer the phone all the time. We get overloaded and we have work to do. So simply go online and schedule a time for us to sit down and have a conversation. We can do a video conference. We can do a telephone conference. Let's simply break the ice and begin getting the information back and forth so we can help guide you in how to make a darn good decision. Because I got news for you. It's going to be ugly in the next few years. Now, the next segment is going to be a little bit quiet for um, my uh, son and I, because one of the things we did is we had a discussion. We were shooting the breeze about agriculture. And so this was not recorded actually in one of our studios, but we were just shooting the breeze, sitting back, having a cup of coffee. So with that in mind, enjoy and listen to our perspective on uh, agriculture and some of the inequalities and in how people are so grossly mistreated when it comes to farm work. You've talked a lot and you've been following agriculture. I've not been following agriculture. And I think a lot of our people who listen to what we have to say really want to know what's going on because you've got some insight. Well, I haven't been following it super closely, but, you know, more than the average, I guess. And I think, you know, generally, you know, you look at the macro trends, you have uh, in 2019, you had winter leave quite late, kind of, you had some snowfall in the late March and in early April and, you know, a lot of rain and, of course, uh, snow melt and when the rivers flooded, and so all throughout the Midwest, you had, uh, especially along the Mississippi River, you had entire farming communities that were sitting under water for the better part of, you know, the beginning part of the growing season. Unfortunately, a lot of those places had seeded by the time the floods came, so, you know, a moderate-sized farming operation can spend millions of dollars seeding their fields at the beginning of the season, so that's just all lost. And then, of course, you lose the time in growing. Now, let's, so a lot let's, of farms just kind of on a broad macro scale throughout the Midwest, and uh, it hit a bunch of specific crops more heavily than others, of course, um, because the things are just grown regionally. But generally speaking, you just had a lot of um, a lot of carnage in the in the agriculture business, and then you couple that with trade war stuff and other things that are just not so good. And, you have a picture that's kind of looking kind of nasty. So let's, people I think realize this, but I think it's worth repeating, even though a lot of people don't realize it. When we talk about farms, there's really not many small family farms left in the U.S. As a percentage of the population per capita, no. Um, there's still tens or hundreds of thousands of, of, of small farms out there. Um, they're becoming increasingly corporatized and bought up by big farms, big ag, as they call it. But the as a per, as a per capita, no. I mean, the average person a hundred years ago grew up on a 
on a small family farm, and you know something like eight or nine out of ten people did. So today, no. I mean, you does anybody know a farmer? No, not if you live in a city or a, a metro area. So it's just it's things have shifted dramatically. And um, and a person who has a garden, a person who puts crops in their backyard or in a pot on their balcony at their apartment or condo, that's not a farmer. A farmer is a real business. <clears throat> One of the things farmers can't do is they can't basically, in some cases, they can't work on their own equipment anymore because of all of the laws, rules, and regulations and the proprietary, you work on our stuff, you violate the terms and conditions of the warranties, they've even made it criminal in some cases, and then you don't have seed banks because these seeds don't germinate. They're always buying their seeds. So when a small to medium-sized farmer plants, plows, and loses that, that's devastating. Yep, and that's why you have to have crop insurance. That's extremely important, and that's a huge part of, I mean, insurance and, and, and hedging your, your season is a huge part of the, the agriculture business. It's not just... It's not just planting and growing. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it that people don't consider. But as we're entering winter this year, it's kind of some places are getting hit a little earlier than others. And this year, of all years, they needed a few extra weeks to be able to get at least a moderately sized crop out of the ground. And unfortunately, as we're getting an early winter, it seems and it's not going to be it basically it's just general generally speaking it's not going to be good especially for certain types of crops um so you know i i believe we already see a like radish shortage of some type celery and like celery or, or onions basically just a bunch of certain types of root vegetables that are grown um and then there's some type of sugar shortage i saw some hints about and um, I'm sure this is all very localized. I mean, we have reserves of these things anyways, but it's just, it's an indicator of how bad the season was. And the reality was it was just shorter and people planted too early. So Now, the problem that you have is we have crops that come from all over the green earth. So, for example, avocados are heavily grown in the country of Chile. And a lot of the water in Chile has been privatized. And Chile has got basically, would you call it a revolution going on right now? There's a low-grade civil war going on. Especially in areas where avocados are grown. In any agricultural area, especially. Because you quite literally have people who don't have potable water because their water source is now used to grow things like Avocados, or in California, as we all well know, things like your your what your nuts. Um, I just lost what type of nut it Almonds. is. Almonds, yeah. So I mean, it's, these are the kinds of things that, when you you look at scarce resources, people get fed up. Now you have the USDA, which gives a lot of food to Africa. What will happen? Here in the United States, if prices, let's say food prices go up 50%, let's say you have a real famine and you, know, you have some, a real issue going on, how do you square helping other people and your own people are paying more 
when the country's yeah, I mean, teetering obviously, already. Obviously, I mean, they'll have to cut back on ex on exports, and they'll have to cut back on on free aid for other countries. That's just you, you know you prefer the political stability domestically rather than internationally. You know, obviously that's that's a priority. It just I don't know. It it depends on how it shakes out. And then one other thing, let's tie this in. You mentioned something that you've been tracking, which again, here at our firm, everybody tracks different things, and we talk about this on a regular basis. So sharing this publicly is not a big deal, but this is what goes on all the time here. The Central American immigration is way down. Yeah, it's down by more than half, net, net, net central and South American immigration, yes. Illegal immigration. And why would that be? Uh, I mean, nobody knows for sure, obviously, because you can't you can't interview somebody that doesn't exist. But the general consensus seems to be that uh, farm jobs are down, and just voluntary enforcement of immigration laws by small and mid-sized employers seems to be up. Basically, you know, nobody nobody wants their name of their company to be in the newspaper being raided by ICE, despite the fact that ICE's enforcement is. You know, pathetic compared to what it was promised. So the old days in which you had prostitutes working the Del Mabry Strip in, in, Ken, in Tampa, the Kennedy Strip, and a little bit on the Nebraska Avenue, those days when the newspapers would publish the names of the Johns, they would have a, they would have a big, well, I, I, back in the day, it, I can tell you it had a big effect because could, you could see the cars. I mean, it was pretty easy to drop. You make a bunch of arrests, all the names go in the paper, everybody drops. That same philosophy, you apply it to employers who are hiring illegals. You lose community support, you lose a lot of things, they don't want to do it. Yeah, it makes sense. But I think that's a that's probably a, a small influencer of the situation. I think the biggest influence has been colder than average winters, hotter than average summer. So there's a shorter migration period for people to come across, combined with just there you don't you don't come to a place for jobs if there's no jobs available so um you know the reality is the farming sector's already gotten one or two bailouts this year they're getting ready to get another one um the reality is people people will complain incessantly about the trade war and all that nonsense with china but the reality with that whole situation is the trade war has been a godsend for u.s agriculture because if it wasn't um we would be in a real serious situation with basically just no product to, to export in, in several specific markets. So, you know, when you combine bad weather, bad just a weird cycle set up, and in combination with you also have with pork products, you have the African swine thing. Um, the fact that we don't have the same type of import and export going on with pork with China is probably a good thing because it's insulated our U.S. pork production from that that virus that hasn't gotten here yet, but it's ravaging China right now, and it's ravaging several other places. So you know, you know, benefits and 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 detracting elements with the trade war on both sides, of course. But you know, net net, I think it's probably a good thing right now. It's all circumstantial, of course. But several months ago, I did, I think in the episode series in maybe the 70s or 80s, I did a big thing on the swine flu. You can check it if you go online and look for it. 
The bottom line is I was rabid for a while, and I even put something on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn that it's just, you have to understand that the swine, you know, not the swine flu for humans, but the swine, uh, what is it called, the African swine flu? Yeah, yeah. something like that. <clears throat> it's a big deal because China eats a lot of pork. I mean, it's really easy to grow a pig as opposed to a cow. The bigger the animal, the more it takes. It's just, that's all there is to it. People can have a, you know, their piece of property and you can have a pig in the backyard and I mean, it just is what it is. So, and that's common. Now they have, I mean, this is not a rural country where everybody is just completely backwards, but China has a lot of rural population still. Oh yeah, more than half, I think. And, and the, some of the cities are just massive. Well, they've got, what is it, over a billion people now? Yeah, 1.3 or 4. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. So a billion more than we have here in the U.S. So you're going to have a lot of small farmers, a lot of it, but this thing is just Vietnam, Cambodia. It's all over the place. At some point in time, the likelihood it's going to come here could be huge. I mean, we have pretty good inspections, but we can't keep illegal immigrants out. We can't keep all the ports. I mean, you can't track everything. So it's just, it's almost a matter of time as, as to when, and if it does, to what degree. Here's the issue. What do you do when it does happen? And is it going to cause even, you know, let's say Trump is still president, is it going to make him go get even more wild-eyed over, over China? You didn't do enough to stop it. I mean, you know, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, yeah, just political theater in this situation. So it should be interesting to see what happens. What we'll do is, for those of you who are clients who are listening to this on a public basis, because we have quite a few clients listen to Connecting Dots, um, we're going to be expanding this discussion to you on a, on a client basis. To those of you who are not clients, um, simply register, get started, and um, this is the kind of stuff that we actually put more online for our clients, and we do it in public, but we really do share a lot of our thoughts and ideas. Any other things you can think of on the uh, agricultural that would basically be a heads up that will cause people to begin thinking and connecting dots? Well, the you know farmer's almanac is an important indicator to watch. Most people will say it's you know astrology you know, BS, but the reality is when you dig into how they do their analysis and how they do their predictions, it actually comes down to just basically observing nature, observing animals, observing, you know, the different things that are happening in your environment more than anything. It's not just a bunch of, you know, make-believe stupid stuff. Um, so they're typically more accurate than the average, than the average, uh, professional forecaster for for agricultural purposes and the almanac has predicted a horribly bad winter again this year so another bad winter is going to be a severe problem for u.s agriculture going forward if we have more than a few bad winters in a row reserves for different crops may start to dry up and you may actually start to see a real crisis it's not anything in the short term, I don't think, other than just isolated weird stuff. Um, but through the midterm, it could be, it could things could get kind of choppy. Um, and then what happens with trade and in this African swine thing that could spell a, a serious calamity. But you know, you don't know. And the reality is, these things take a, a long while to develop. So. And one of the things I will be doing for our clients is I'm going to be doing personally, and maybe you can help me on doing this and working into your schedule, 
I'm going to be looking at some of the mega farms that are in South America and where are they in relationship to the areas of conflict. Because if we start having problems here, where's the food going to come from? We know we get food. Obviously, you get wheat. You get lots of things from Canada. They have a shorter growing season, of course. We also have South America. And some of those farms down there are absolutely massive. And so we want to make sure, you know, um, just exactly what's going on in the breadbasket not only here in the U.S., but also in South America. Yeah, I think, I think another thing to consider is that with your larger, with, with, with your farming in general, you have a lot of places where crop prices have been severely depressed, primarily due to excessive exports and just abundant supply. So while this seems very scary and, oh, we're, you know, you're very afraid there's going to be a shortage of food, it may actually be a good thing because it actually tightens up the supply and people actually get to get to make some profit on some of these crops that, you know, they got into the business 20 years ago and bought a farm. And we're selling, you know, soybeans for $7, you know, $7 or for, you know, a ton or whatever, and now they're selling for 3 Like, these people are going out of business because food prices are not properly reflected at the grower's level, at the agricultural level, but at the consumer level, they're there's a lot of inflation, and that's because there's a lot of middlemen. So the middlemen will get squeezed. Maybe a good thing for the for, for, for small and medium-sized ag, big ag might get squeezed, and I don't feel sympath- I have no sympathies for them at all, and you shouldn't either. Let's do a pivot. Let's tie this to what we do. I've met people occasionally. I had a guy that I went to a dinner with <clears throat> down in Tampa. I knew it was going to be difficult, but I wanted to talk with him because I knew he was of a certain mindset. And you get a lot of these robo-advisors that are charging basically next to nothing, and they're losing money all the time. And so you have more and more people racing to basically give everything away. You and I have done a massive amount of research in crunching the numbers as to how low we can go, right? Absolutely. But we have to make a profit. We're not a charity. Well, you also have to price things to be able to convey the value that you provide. I mean, just because you can do something for really an inexpensive price also doesn't mean that people will buy it because they look at it and say, there's something weird here versus the traditional industry. They just kind of, they, they bake the costs in and you have no idea what you're even paying to begin with. So what we did is because of especially my background and expertise and all the ABCs and the years and experience, I, can, I know things, I do things, I can provide the advice, I got to get paid. So it's on a time basis. It's not cheap, is it? No, okay. it shouldn't be. And, but when we plant a field, so it's like management, we don't charge this farmer any different from another farmer. It's, it's fair pricing, all things being equal. Sure. But for time, we charge for our time. So... The bottom line is, if you got a farmer who, like, I need help, I need an expert to come in, you got to pay for that. If you don't want to do it, then struggle through and knock yourself out. Now, with that in mind, you know, I think one of the things that we're going to see in the very near future, a lot of these low-cost, super cheap robo-advisors, they're all losing money. I mean, there is, do you know of anyone that's actually made a profit yet? I don't know of anybody that's, that's net profitable when you account for all of their different business activities now. And and they're they're a lot like we work, they're a lot like I mean, Uber the and I guess being the big banks, but they have a built in customer base and they you know but a lot of those are lost leaders. We've had some of these banks have get, gotten out of it as well. They just they can't make any money on it. it. It depends on the structure, but yeah, yeah you have. And how many ETFs have 
we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. How many ETFs have folded their doors? A lot and continue to because there's more ETFs than our individual securities. So And we just, you and I just got done sitting at my desk. We were kind of walking around my office talking about this, and not, no names, this new idiot ETF. I call it a Rodney. You can explain it. Your term, I think, is better. But it's basically an equity index annuity without being an annuity. You want to, you called it a, a mid... Yeah, I, I said it's a product for midwits. It's people who are of middle intelligence who, you know, people in the lower lower end of the intelligence spectrum will just look at it because their their gut instinct says that this is stupid and smart people will look at it who understand all the terminology and are you know well versed in the, in the topic to be able to do a, a rough analysis or, or build an analysis on it and they're going to look at it and go oh this doesn't make any sense why would anybody buy this you know they have a similar take but it's just from an educated perspective the problem is, is the people in the middle who are middle intelligence or middle understanding or knowledge about the topic, they're going to look at it and go, oh, it's, it's, it's these combination of things that I understand and trust, and they're going to buy it, and then they're, you know, they're going to have issues. It's, it's a product for people who, who are basically being suckered into it. It doesn't make any sense. Well, when this product came across this afternoon, I took about 30 minutes and did some basic fundamental research on it with industry publications and what I would call academic and then mainstream publications. Nobody's nobody's figured it out. It's nothing more than an equity index annuity without the annuity component. All, and when I talk to people about what equity index annuities, and again, for clients, you know, we have a lot of material for you on this. Take a look at all our material about why you don't want to use equity index annuities. But for, the, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, all an equity index annuity is is an options contract. You're using things like treasuries for your base and you're using an options contract and you exercise it if you're up. But now this year, the stock market's up, what, about 25%, the S&P? Yeah. That's, that's wow. huge, which means you have an equity index annuity. If it has a cap of 12%, you're getting 12. That's it. So you, on top of which you don't get any dividends and you don't actually own any securities within your bundled product. There's no, there are no dividends paid when you have an options contract. It's, but it's a pure options contract, so it's like, okay. And dividends make up historically anywhere 20 to 25% and as high as 30% depending upon the calculations of the return of the market. So it's a midwit product. A lot of boomers, especially in the villages, a lot of these retirement communities, you have all these brokers who are out there just pushing, 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 you know, fear, 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 and Margaret, you know, freaks out and does what she does. So I think, you know, you get these people, they create these products that's based upon fear. People follow it. Is there any wonder why you have agriculture upside down when you, I mean, it's it's a fear thing. It's, we're going to grow, we're going to put all of our California water, not all, but we're going to put tons of our California water into grow, what was it again? Well, almonds, avocados, and a couple other heavily water-intensive crops. And we're going to turn the water off to places like Los Angeles. Oh, no, they'll never do that. But the prices they pay for their water oh, are sky yes. high. Yeah. yeah, and same thing in Chile. All these people, these dirt-poor farmers, they bring... It was so amazing to see trucks carrying water to people where there's, I mean, literally a couple hundred yards away, they're just flooding the fields with what these people used to have for water. It's just utterly insane. I know that a lot of people are into SRI and ESG investing. Now, I'll never understand why anyone, you got to have your avocado toast, right? That's a, is that still a big thing by chance? I guess, yeah. Okay, so you, you got to have your avocado toast. You Do you realize what you're doing when you buy that avocado? No, I mean, the modern, modern agriculture is no different than 
modern agriculture is um, socially social issues around here. I'll rephrase this: the the, pro, the social issues around modern agriculture and big ag are worse than than the the blood diamond fiasco that was created in about uh, what ten or fifteen years ago. Everybody got all concerned and hot and bothered about blood diamonds in, in South Africa and in Africa. And then there's there was definitely something to be said about it. I'm not I'm not negating, you know, the the plight of those people, of course. But it was very isolated and very small business. I mean, we're talking a few billion dollars a year for the diamond industry. This is food. This is a multi hundred billion dollar a year industry that literally has basically slave labor in Central and South America and and other in in and across Asia. And they're stealing people's water for so big farms can grow more food. And they're putting small farmers out of business because, you know, they have better distribution, they have um, better ins and imports and exports, you know, they have better deals, they have, um, you know, just economies of scale, very simply. It's, it's gross. I mean, the, 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 lack of, the lack of local agriculture anywhere in the world and across the United States it's, it's the United States and Europe it's worse than anywhere else there's no local agriculture and if there is it's like small seasonal stuff that nobody cares about um, it's, it's, it's a severe problem and it's, it will become a humanitarian problem it's just a matter of time I always got a kick out of uh, in the 2008 time frame when you had a lot of these people were buy local buy local and they would have you know, local currency and we'll call it Tampa bucks, St. Pete bucks, whatever. They, people always, they, they, you know, buy local, help your local retailer. I used to always say, I get that, but that's not going to really help things. You need local manufacturing. You need local growing. And when you get to the point where you're dependent upon nearly 80, 90% of what you do coming from outside of your area, that isn't good. And I'd have people say, well, oh, come on, Paul, it's not a big deal. Well, where were you in 1970, was it three and four, when we had OPEC turn off the spigot and we were pushing our cars? Because I was around back then in the gas lines. My dad, us, pushing cars. You turned your car off your stood in line to get gas. Does anybody remember that? President Ford? Probably not. Most people weren't born back then. They weren't adults, but those of us who are a little older remember it. How about the war rations during World War II? You know, my mother and father, in fact, I think somewhere we still have the ration coupons that they saved from years ago. Um, those times can come back just like that. Oh, of course. And, and the hilarious thing is, is both of those instances that you just referenced, I mean, when you dig into the actual history... Both of those incidents were caused by the United States and our foreign interventionalism basically sticking our nose where it doesn't belong. I mean, yep. You know, the 70, the OPEC oil shortage and everything was because we relied on Middle East imports instead of getting our own. For the first time in ever, for some reason, we decided it was better to import from over there than it was to use to pull out of the ground here. And then... Then we started giving foreign military aid to places like Israel, which made everybody mad, and it turned it into a hornet's nest. And then they said, okay, well, the United States relies on us, so they gave us the middle finger and turned our oil off. It's like, turns out the domestic production of oil was super important, and, you know, it took years to get that back online to the point that it took until basically this year or last year. You know, people don't don't think about the domino consequences of 
we do one thing and then we do another thing and you combine those two together and it causes an explosion you know you have you have to put these you have to put these these giant macro decisions into context and unfortunately the political leadership of the country is just pathetic regardless of the time frame i mean now 10 years ago 20 years ago 50 years ago it's all the same thing um well i've said for years short term yeah, I've said for years, I mean, ever since I met the man and I read the book and having the opportunity to actually meet him one time at a guest lecture, <clears throat> Edward C. Banfield, The Unheavenly City Revisited, Chapter 3, Paragraph 56, start reading about what it means to be successful, and those who have a long-term time horizon are much more successful than those that are short-term. We used to have a long-term time horizon in the country. Uh, we used to have that rugged entrepreneurial individualism, you used to, you know, go west, young man, that sort of thing. I mean, you didn't just get on your, you didn't put on your shoes and put on your straw hat and put a um, corn cob in your mouth and walk from Missouri to California. You just didn't do it. You, you had a plan. You had to think. You, you had to get a group together, you know. Um, but the bottom line is people died, but people, you just, you got better and better and better. And eventually you, in essence, colonized the country. But that being said, you know, the short-term time horizon stuff is just, it's killing us. Let's finish up with one thing. We have people who may misunderstand something. We don't do what a lot of people do, which is socially responsible and this ESG investing. We don't, we don't use that really much in our practice. But we have a different way of doing it. How do we do it? Well, we simply just do deselection. So, you know, there's a million and one different causes for... Uh, environmentally sensitive or socially responsible investing depending on how you look at it and everybody has different qualms or things that they're concerned about and very simply um, we have approximately a dozen different um, categories for things that you can deselect out of your out of your um, holdings um, so basically the way it works is if you have a list of securities an index or whatever and you just remove the ones that don't fit your criteria for whatever whatever your criteria is. So, for example, if you don't want to own anybody that um, produces or assists in creating nuclear power plants or nuclear weapons or anything like that, non nuclear nonproliferation, that's one of the selectors you pick from. And as long as um, you have that option enabled on, on whatever your holdings are, uh, you, your account will not own anybody, any company that fits that list of companies that assists or, or makes any money on those types of items. Same thing for military or alcohol. Or tobacco, yeah, lots tobacco, of different things. Com a couple combinations of different things, uh, animal testing, different, different things like that. So. so what we've created, and we call it what? We give a very specific name to it. Blacklist. So... In our blacklist, if you say, I want to be socially responsible, we will give you examples of companies that you may not want to invest in. But what you actually do is you actually specify the companies you want. You can do it as a big, broad category, but you can also say, yeah, but I really like GE, I like this company. I, I, I eliminate these four, but keep the rest, right? I mean, you have that kind of specificity that I don't know anybody else offers. Well, and more importantly, most people are invested in ETFs and mutual funds, and you very, you quite simply cannot 
tell the ETF or mutual fund manager what they can own. Not going to happen. You just buy the index, and that's just what it is. So at the end of the day, you're just index hugging what somebody else dictates you're going to hug. And with us, you actually own the individual securities, so you can actually say, no, I don't want to own that. So for those of you who are listening, what I want you to understand is, is this. Stop being lemmings. If you want to follow the Pied Piper, then what you're going to do tonight is you're going to watch a Burger King commercial and go, oh, honey, it's time to eat. And let's go to Burger King because that's the last commercial you saw. If you saw McDonald's or you saw Taco Bell, whatever was the most current thing in front of you, you're going to go see. You go to uh, Publix or you go to Winn-Dixie or you go to Albertsons or whatever your grocery store is. And, oh, look, they have this for sale. And you just, you're just a lemming. If that's what you want to be, you're going to love indexing. You just let somebody else handle it. But what we're saying is if you really don't want to be a lemming, you want to be involved, we have a better way. It's simple and it's better and it works. It works because it's simple. And so you actually can remove the individual securities that you don't want. In other words, it's called direct indexing, isn't it? Exactly. And we don't just do direct indexing on a big, broad index. We do sectors, don't we? Yes. So altogether, how many different, and we call them investments, silos. We use the word silos because in terms of farms, right? Exactly. Yeah. Separating out assets for very specific purposes or goals. And one of the things we our, our, our investment silos are designed not only for holdings, but also for time horizon and, and specific goals. So, for example, if you have a farm and you have a silo, you may not know this, but some silos hold wood chips, some hold coal, some have corn, some have soy or wheat. You don't combine those, do you? No, not at all. So it's a basic fundamental approach to investing that to be really blunt with you, most people don't do. They just buy a mutual fund or an index, and then they consider themselves an investor. We do it completely different. So using that farm analogy that we talked about, and instead of being forecasters that are just based upon the numbers, that's called quantitative analysis, we're forecasters that use both the qualitative and the quantitative. And how many times have you heard me say how important it is to get out and sniff dirt? Sniffing dirt. We just talked about a publication, the Farmer's Almanac, and what do they basically do? We just apply basic principles that were found out in the past hundreds of years ago. And I would say they apply some of the same principles that I've taught you and others, sniffing dirt by looking at animals, looking how thick their coats are. You know, if you're living near a coast and all the animals are running inland, there's a high probability to hit the fan, right? Yeah, absolutely. If, if all the birds are going south really early in the year, might be a really cold winter coming up. Some things are just not rocket science. This is Paul Truesdell, and you are listening to Connecting Dots. Make sure to read the disclaimer in our show notes before each episode. Connecting Dots is for educational use only. Investment performance is not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation or needs. Nothing should be construed as an individual recommendation. Always read and all applicable information carefully before making an investment decision. Investments are not bank guaranteed, not FDIC insured, and may lose value. 
Due to our extensive holdings and that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and thus a conflict of interest should be assumed. does it for today's episode. This is our uh, after show discussion and uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to these as much as I enjoy doing it. For those of you who are clients, including those of you who are not clients, here's what's going to be happening at Fixed Cost Financial in the next few, oh, probably week or so. We've got a really cool thing that we're going to be doing and it's all about Woodstock. You know, 50 years ago, 1969, you had Woodstock. And those who were attending were in their 20s and 30s. Now, those people are a bunch of old farts in their 70s and 80s, if you think about it. 50 years ago, Woodstock. And uh, this group of people that really wanted to change the world and people should express their own opinion and everything should be uh, cool are some of the most narrow-minded, obnoxious, selfish people we have in the world today. Yeah, I'm talking about you retirees, you boomers, and uh, near-boomers that screwed everything up. So here's the thing, what we're going to do. We're going to talk about what happened in 1969. We're going to talk about how they didn't make money, how screwed up it was. I'm going to go through all the things and how it was such a cool event. Then we're going to go through and talk about what happened in 1994. Some amazing similarities. And then what we're going to do is 2019. And we're going to tie all this with the Fry Festival. And then we're also going to take a look at this with what goes on in California at Coachella. We're going to talk about the business of putting on events. And listen, I've spoken for, gosh, 34 years at literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seminars and workshops on different topics in finance, especially the Living Trust Reality Workshop, which is what I did for a long, long time. But we are going to get into the mud. I like that. For those of you who remember Woodstock, 969 and 94, we're going to get into the mud and we're going to go through all these things and you're going to have a ball because it's really cool. We have really put a lot of effort into this and this will be for clients only. Our whole discussion about Woodstock and the financial issues that go on in Woodstock is so cool. For those of you who are too young to remember it, you probably weren't born if you're under 50, right? You weren't born then, but hey, listen. It was an event that really should be understood, not from just a music standpoint, but from the business standpoint. With that, thanks for joining us. We're out of here. Although we remember it as a great countercultural event, the three-day Woodstock Music and Art Fair was primarily intended to be a money-making opportunity. Many who attended Woodstock were in their 20s and 30s, today, they are in their 70s and 80s. When Woodstock ended, the devastation wreaked by 500,000 kids on what had once been a pristine upstate New York alfalfa field, a scene that would take the next three weeks to clear up.
You do not want to miss this episode of Connecting Dots for Clients Only. We may run it after our clients have had access to it for a while, but this will be one of those really cool things, and you know how to get a hold of us, right? You go to fixcostfinancial.com, you go to dots.fm, you use the blue intercom button, you make that phone call to 212-433-2525, and you simply get started. i got to tell you, the way we do it, it's better because it's simple and it works. Everything we do is simple, we don't make mountains out of molehills, and the way we do it, again, it's fair, it's transparent, it's accessible, and it's cool.